Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the next edition of the Clockwork CIO. Very much looking forward to today's guest, Justice Palmer, uh, an award-winning venture capitalist with over 15 years of uh, private markets experience. As the founder and CEO of Fortuna Investments, Justice leads a team with offices in Miami, Los Angeles and Vancouver. Uh, and the real focus of the firm is is really on investing and creating the emerging technologies and industries of the future. Uh, Justice was a 2018 recipient of business in Vancouver's prestigious 40 Under 40 Award for his achievements and excellence in business, judgment, leadership, and community contributions. So. Uh, a very relevant guest for the podcast and I'm really, really pleased to have Justice as a guest today and uh, great to have you on the show. The, the pleasure is mine and thank you for having me, James. So let's dive into the first point that I make with each guest, Justice. How would you characterize your approach to leadership currently at, at Fortuna? So the, the leadership that uh, you know I, I look to instill at, at Fortuna Investments is is really leading by example, and you know we've been around long enough, and I've been in different situations where um, you know a leader may say something, but they may not deliver it on the goods, and, and people are very very intelligent, whether they're um, subordinates or or, or 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 people running the company, and what ends up happening is there's a little bit of a mismatch if the person barking the orders or doing the things isn't actually doing those things him or herself. And so I really, really try and do an excellent job. And, and, you know, these are anything from the little things like, you know, making sure you're showing up to meetings early, you know, working hard, staying late, like some of these small intangibles that people often look and gloss over. We really make sure that we're, we're present here at Fortuna and I'm really driving that. Aside from obviously the visionary aspect and, and the, you know, the real meat and potatoes of, 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 you know, where we're going directionally, I do think it's really important to empower my people. You know, we're, we're almost 30 people at Fortuna. We're a good sized firm. Um, you know, I think we're, we're very aggressive. We've got some extremely intelligent people. We, we punch well above our, our, our weight class in terms of transactions and, and, you know, the companies that we've been able to build and grow. Um, but I really, really try our best in terms of leadership to empower each and every individual that's working in the organization to lift them up and give them the opportunity to succeed. And what would be like an example of, of that uh, in terms of empowerment? What, could you could you give a brief example? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, if you close your eyes, just think about the opposite of micromanagement. And I think we've all worked in firms or, or companies where, you know, you've got a leader who's really on your, your rear end, you know, micromanaging things, you know, really holding you, you in, in checks and accountabilities. And it's not to say that we don't have accountability at Fortuna. We obviously do. But I really try and give our, our individuals the, the free runway to make their own decisions, to fail. I really like failure, as sick as that's, as stupid as that sounds, but I, we really enjoy failure. Not that we like to lose, but I realize the quicker that we're failing, the quicker we can make adjustments, the quicker we can succeed. And so just empowering these playmaking individuals to make their own um, directional sense, because I don't necessarily, this is not a, a dictatorship where it's one person's idea and everybody has to fall in line. It is a meritocracy where everybody are unique, and that's what makes our firm and the world a beautiful place where everybody does have their unique ideas. And if you're given the right platform to share those ideas and they can run with them, that's where a lot of the magic happens. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sure that resonates very well with the team, especially maybe the younger uh, colleagues at Fortuna, would you say? Cause you, it's, I wonder, this isn't in the questions I sent over to you, but but I just wonder whether you think across different age groups, you know, the younger colleagues versus colleagues closer to your age, and then even older colleagues. Did you have to? Do you have to? Do you find that you have to strike a different balance depending on who they are, what their experience has been, how how you know their age as well. I mean, I think a couple of things, right? It starts with the tenets of, of treating people with respect, 
Hmm. regardless if you're a young kid with a backwards hat on or, or if you're, you're, you're somebody who's my grandfather's age. I think if you start with a fundamental tenet of respect and appreciating what that other person is saying, because usually there's a reason why that person's saying what they're saying. And you don't necessarily have to agree with that person, but I think it, it would behoove you if you don't listen and hear that person out. And so, yes, I, I, I totally hear and understand what you're saying with, you know, a lot of these millennials and younger, you know, the knock is they don't want to work. They, you know, you'll be lucky to get nine to five, three days a week and, and things like that. But um, the reality is us, us at Fortuna, I, I just turned 40 years old. Um, and I'm one of the eldest people in the entire organization. So we're a young workforce. We're, you know, between late 20s and early 40s. We're young, we're aggressive, we're vibrant. And that's what gives us the energy to really, really um, get out there and, and try and do some really spectacular and special things in, in life. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's great. And just to, just a brief, because we're going to come back to where you're investing just later in the conversation, but just, just briefly on, on, on that energy. And, and as I say, you're looking at uh, very much industries and technologies of tomorrow, but what, do, can you just give a, just a minute or two on just your current sort of investment sort of thesis? Absolutely. So we, uh, we start, I started Fortuna Investments in, in 2015, which is uh, um, almost a decade ago now. I don't know where the time's gone, but uh, we, were, we were fortunate enough. We really kind of made a name for ourselves back in, in 2016 into 2017. That's uh, effectively when, when Elon and Tesla were just beginning to break through. Um, people may forget this, but Tesla at that point in time was the most shorted and hated stock on the planet. I mean, everybody held that, you know, that, that company out to dead in, in 2016, 2017. He was only selling 40, 50,000 cars a year, bleeding cash. But we took a hard look at what was going on and, and, and we made the determination that we believe this electrification isn't a fallacy or a fad. It's really going to happen exactly how that happened, you know, to TBD. But what's clear to us is when this thing takes off, it's the lithium ion batteries that are fueling that are fueling this generation or this, this electrification of the world. And so once you distill and figure that out, and then you realize it's not just the electric cars, it's the MacBook computer that I'm you know on with you on, it's it's the Apple iPhones, it's it, there's so much battery demand. And if it's all coming from lithium. It became very easy to us in a certain way. And so what we at Fortuna started to do in 2016, 2017, we started to found and co-found and build uh, lithium exploration companies. And we were fortunate enough to have tremendous success there. A couple of them did fantastically well. Uh, you know, one went to a billion dollars on the NASDAQ and uh, another one was sold a year and a half ago for $460 million. So we really started to... Um, you know, get some traction and leverage in our thought processes and in our ideas and, and, and our growth of companies. And so what we've done, us being futurists, and, and, and again, we try and set the trend and, and be ahead of the curve. We're not always right, but, you know, we, we really swing the bat and we, we take chances. And so where we are now is we believe that the space industry or, or the new space economy within the space industry is that next trillion dollar opportunity. It's a $560 billion a year U.S. business. It's going to a trillion this decade. We think it's going to be the fastest growing industry out of anything, maybe next to only AI. And we at Fortuna are at the forefront of that revolution, um, mm -hmm. starting with our first $50 million commitment to a, a company called, very exciting company called Starfighters Aerospace. Uh, yeah, and we'll, I'm going to come back to that later on. So it, it ties in with Miami and the office that you've opened yep. there. But we'll come. Yeah, that's great though to set the scene. Uh, it's really interesting to, yeah, what we, what you're uh, what you're making of uh, space tech and uh, the yeah the, the the total addressable market for that uh, is clearly quite substantial. Um, let let me let, let let's now just kind of swing the time back to just when you were growing up and um, just to understand a little bit about your, your, your upbringing, uh, Justice, I believe you grew up in a pretty small town on Vancouver Island. Maybe I'll just let you uh, share a little bit of uh, insight on that. Yeah. So I, 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 I grew up in a, a very small, call it remote town in, in Canada. 
uh, a place called Duncan, British Columbia. Uh, population was maybe, let's say, 20, 30,000 people. So it's a very small town, one high school, uh, one McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> there might actually be, <laughs> there might be two McDonald's uh, as of now, but I haven't been back in some time. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, just to kind of give you context of scope, and basically small town, middle of nowhere. Um, I loved my... Um, you know, upbringing um, in the sense that, uh, you know, growing up in a small town, you learn certain values that, um, you know, I live in the biggest cities in, in North America now, which, you know, are great and amazing, but there's certain, there's a certain something to be said about growing up and living in a small town where, you know, you, you effectively know everybody. So, you know, you've got to be on relatively good behavior in a certain way. Um, your, your word is your bond, you know, your handshake is your bond. Hmm. And, uh, and yeah, just, I mean, picture yourself growing up where, you know, you don't lock your doors, you know, your neighbors, you say hi to people at the grocery store and you have a lot of time for people. And so when you grow up under that uh, background for, uh, I guess, 17 years of your life, it really shapes the way you see the world one and two, how you should really kind of treat people. And again, that could be colleagues, it could be employees, it could be, a, you know, an individual like yourself, James, who's gracious enough to have me on your, your podcast. So um, it, it's, it starts with that. And I think a lot of that was distilled in, in, in my uh, upbringing in a small town in Canada. Yeah, I, that, it must be fascinating to live in that slightly uh, kind of insulated environment almost because I, I guess it sounded quite you know quite idyllic and and then you know very, very beautiful i mean you know vancouver island i mean fascinating place uh, great nature i i i guess what i'm getting at is it, it you must have uh when you actually stepped out into the the wider world it must have been a wow you know it's actually it's not all quite the way that uh, my upbringing has kind of led me to believe not everybody is nice and friendly and maybe I have got a lot my door. <laughs> I mean, it must have been a bit, a bit of an adjustment for you later on in your life. Well, I mean, what I'd say was, I, I don't necessarily think, I, I, I think I'm, I have been relatively called street smart and kind of sharp and, and different things in, in, in my upbringing. So I wasn't necessarily a uh, you know, a country bumpkin who just come to the big city for the first time and said, what's this, uh, you know, what's this airplane or what's this, uh, you know, taxi cab and things like that. But, um, but as time went on, I, I, I think you're absolutely right where, um, you know, a lot of the things that would maybe happen in big cities weren't happening per se in a very small nested community because uh, you mm. know a town of 20,000 people it's a real community and yeah. you know I'm in Los Angeles right now the you know population 12 million people um you know that's not you might meet somebody and you'll never see that person ever again in, in Los in, in Los Angeles in, in in Duncan BC that's not the case right if you you see somebody chances are you're going to see that person tomorrow and next week or at the grocery store or at church or or at school and so just that framework of of kind of the difference between the two um i i think is important but um but again i i think you know um there's a lot of benefits to both i think if you really re and it's not to say that you cannot make it in a small town but just the reality is the resources that are available to you in a small town just aren't there. And they're not at par with the big, you know, not even North American cities. James, I believe you're in London. You know, I mean, these are global, global, you know, cities. Zach's in New York. And so when you come to a big city, yes, the competition is significantly more, but the opportunity is exponentially more as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's very well said. And it's... Uh, uh, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, these these uh, these metropolises uh, or metropo metropoli, I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're they're quite a different uh, proposition altogether. But let, let me just so, just just so growing up though in Duncan. Yeah, I think when we spoke previously, you, you found there was maybe this inner drive, if I can call it that, that uh, there was a you had. A, a very strong uh, willpower, uh, a real desire, and an, an, an ambition to to do good by people. Uh, and I, I just wonder where that came from. Was that was that the way that you were brought up by 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 your parents? I, I just wonder where that inner that inner drive came from for you. 
Well, I mean, for, for me, you know, fortunately or, or unfortunately, everyone's situation is obviously very different. But for, for me, you know, I, I had a great, you know, upbringing and a great, you know, my formative years were, were great when I was really young. Um, you know, my dad was a businessman. He was an import export business. He, he, he wore a, you know, a blazer and uh, um, drove a Cadillac, you know, into work every morning. And so that's the way, you know, I, I grew up. Uh, unfortunately, when I was quite young, um, around 10 years old, um, my father's business went, went bankrupt and, and effectively my parents split up. And so that was a real kind of fork in the road or, or, or interesting time in my life where, um, you know, effectively we became homeless in a certain way because my parents split. I, I had to move in with the extended family and then eventually my grandparents. And, you know, we didn't necessarily have a, a house of our own. Um, you know, my, my mom was working double shifts, so I would barely ever kind of see her. Um, unfortunately, not very long after they split, my, my father passed away. And so when you look at things under that backdrop, it kind of, yeah, it's, it's, you know, maybe upsetting or, or, or troubling. But for me, it actually became very easy to make that choice because I was put in a, you know, kind of a difficult or a really difficult situation. And I could sit there and cry and whine and say, hey, the world screwed me. And, you know, my neighbors have both their parents and they, they can afford to go to hockey schools and all these types of things. And I can't. But I looked at my situation. Um, you know, they say that you can only you only play the hand that's dealt to you. My hand was not a good hand at that point in time. And how do I change that? So for me at 10, 12 years old, you know, I can't get a job, but I can get a paper route. So I got a paper route. I, I realized if I get two paper routes in the, in the joining area, that's twice as much money. So you know, I, I started working. I started making money. I wanted to get myself out of that situation. And so, and then again, when I turned 14, which is the legal age in Canada where you can have gainful employment, you know, I got a job at Wendy's. I got a job at the Real Clean Superstore. And I, I started working to make income because I was smart enough to, to I think, realize at that time money does obviously doesn't fix everything but if you have money you have time you have resources and you have optionality and so for me in particular uh, again it was a difficult situation where i started to kind of work through and you know and it wasn't perfect by any stretch but for me that's where some of these things were ingrained in me that i've got to outwork people i've got to seize these opportunities i've got to drive things forward because nobody's going to do it for me unfortunately yeah i mean there was a, a real <clears throat> lack of uh, a safety net in some respects uh, your mum having to work double shifts yeah it's tough tough uh, a tough upbringing you know she's obviously committing all the hours of the day to provide for her family so that's you know that's um i'm that that clearly then that 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 period in your life uh, just as that that really instilled that 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 work ethic that, that uh, I'm sure has stuck with you to to this day. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I, I would totally uh, agree with that. And and again, the way that I see the world, you know, particularly, and and it relates to business, and and that's why you know I think we're all here, um, you know, for your viewers as well. Where the way that I see the world is, you know, maybe I'm the most talented guy, maybe I'm not the most talented guy. I I, I don't know. To TBD. But when you look at it from maybe, let's say, a sports perspective, I, you know, I think there's a lot of commonality between sports and, and business, a lot of competition. Everyone's trying to win. There's winners, there's losers. And so let's say I'm not let's say I'm not the most talented guy, but I'm working 16 hours a day. Let's say there's somebody far more talented than me, but he or she's only working eight hours a day, half the time. I don't know when exactly, but at some point in time, it might not be in the first week. If, if I'm going to the gym, I'm you know, really, really cranking work for 16 hours a day. That person's only doing eight. Might not be in the first handful of days. It might not even be in the first week. Might not even be in the first couple of months. But at some point in time, if I'm putting in the time and the energy and I'm compounding that time and energy, at some point in time, in months and years, doesn't matter how talented or how much of a leg up or how much of an advantage that other person started with, I'm going to absolutely take them over. And that's what's called playing the long game. It's, it, it's about compound interest and what Albert Einstein, and he generally is talking about, you know, um, uh, uh, financial, you know, and, and compounding actual money, but mm. you can actually compound your time to actually get to that place over the long term. Now, the problem is most people in our society 
you know, there's so many distractions. There's so much TikTok. There's this. You know, we live in a world of instant gratification, right? Everybody, you know, wants things on demand and wants things now. And so it's really difficult to stick with something like that over the long term sometimes because you're not going to see the results. It's like me if I was, you know, 300 pounds and overweight and I, I wanted to get in better shape. If I go to the gym for a couple of days, I'm probably not going to see anything. If I go for a couple of weeks, I may see a little bit of a dent. But after those months and years, that's when you look in the mirror and that person that you see in your mirror is unrecognizable to that person that was there before. So that's the stuff that I'm talking about. And the great news is, is we can apply this in, in, in running a business, running a fund, you know, having good relationships, basically universally. Yeah, very well said. I think it's, uh, and there are some, some really great examples of uh, people that um, have really kind of transformed their, I mean, as you talk about that compounding time and, and if you even apply it to, uh, you know, you hear about some of these folks that are, you know, they've, they've, they're now ultra, ultra trail runners, ultra marathon runner, you know, they, they, they're running like marathons weekly, sometimes daily. And, you know, they, they absolutely transform their, their physical uh, being. Uh, and I think it, it's really interesting that, that, you know, when the mind is, is really focused on something, it can achieve mm -hmm. incredible things, whether mm -hmm. it's in business, in sport, in, mm -hmm. in just our health and well-being, whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and James, and, and James, to that point, and, and so um, I don't know if you've ever talked to long distance runners. I have. Um, there's actually a really good book as well. David Goggins has a book called um, Unbreakable, which is a great I, book. And I was actually in my mind thinking of him when I was just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and on that note, you, know, you, you must wonder, it's like, how is this individual able to run 100 miles? or you know, 500 miles, it's actually incomprehensible almost to think about somebody to run for 24, 48 hours straight. And so the trick or the way that they do that is they don't worry about, if they worry about the whole race, they're going to give up and stop. It's too much to handle. Yeah. So they'll just look at the, the closest reasonable point in the distance and just run to that point and keep running to that point over and over and over again. And so what I do and the way that I kind of equate it to my life is we, we've got something called days in a week. There's seven days in a week. And so what, what I try and do, and I'm not perfect at it, but I'm pretty good at it. So at the beginning of the, at the, in the morning, it's Justice Parmar Zero, the world zero. Where it, it, it's a brand new game, brand new mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're fantastic days. Sometimes I'm up significantly in the evening. It's a happy day. But for some reason, sometimes for any fault of my own or, or luck or circumstance, <laughs> I get my butt kicked and it's, the world's just won that day. The good news is when I go to bed, that scoreboard resets. And in the morning, it's zero, zero again. So I try and win my days. And if I can win enough days and if I win more days than I lose over the week and I start winning more weeks than I start losing, and you start compounding that like we were talking about in the months and years, that's a brilliant formula to stay on track, to measure yourself. Don't be too, too hard on yourself because again, life and things happen, but as long as you have a system and a desire to move forward, remarkable things are able to happen. Now, let's go to your, you studied at the University of Victoria and that then, led you to i believe that's when you then moved to to vancouver so the big city um what 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 talk us through that part of your life uh just so you maybe just after you'd finished at the university of victoria and, and actually what did you what did you study there so i mean i you know I, I didn't really know what i wanted to do obviously you you know i was a great student i was a straight a student i had scholarships and and all sorts of things I wanted to actually go to the, the school in the States where, where I am now. Um, but, but again, my family situation where, you know, a single mom, I, I have a brother who's nine years younger than me. And, and, and so the reason I picked University of Victoria is because it's the closest bona fide or big university from Duncan. It's only about an hour away from Duncan. So I was able to actually live at home in Duncan with my family and commute most of the time. And so um, 
yeah, again, I didn't really, really know what I wanted to do. I, I thought maybe I wanted to go to law school or, or, or something like that when you're 17, 18 years old and you don't have maybe proper guidance. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you're just you're, you're trying to figure it out in a certain way. And so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I took, a, you know, I, I took um, you know, psychology, social sciences, businesses. I, I took a wide variety of, of classes. I ended up gravitating towards more business classes. Um, but for me... I first, there was something about the school that I just I wasn't I wasn't sure about continuing long term in school into graduate school and, and things and beyond. I'd come from a small twenty thousand person town. I'm now in this big city, as, as you call it, of Victoria, which is you know eight hundred thousand people or so. Some people are probably smiling because <laughs> maybe that's small to small oh. to where they're listening from. Um, but yeah, I, for for me, it was I, I got to get out of here. I got to go. I have to go to somewhere bigger. I have to go somewhere. Where there's more opportunities. I have to see more life. I have to see more things. And fortunately, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, is a couple hours of ferry ride away from uh, the island of of, of uh, Vancouver Island. So, uh, you know, after four years of Victoria, I, I packed up and I, I moved to the actual big city of uh, Vancouver. And uh, mm -hmm. and yeah, that, that's where we ended up. And so you, you before too long you found yourself working at Macquarie I think uh, I think that was a very successful time for you I think that was back in 2009 so what what, what were you doing what were you doing at Macquarie there yeah so I, I finished I, I, I left college in, in uh, 2004 I, I moved to Vancouver I guess 2005 I must you know in and around that period right thereafter and uh, I actually, so I started, I mean, I didn't start at this huge, you know, massive investment bank, you know, managing money at Macquarie. I, I started at, at, a, at, a, at a bank, uh, CIBC Bank, you know, it's one of Canada's biggest banks. Uh, I started there as a teller, a simple teller, you know, going to school, finishing, you know, college. And um, that's actually where I started. And, and so for me at that point in time, um, what happened was there was actually somebody who came in. And so he, and so you got to close your eyes and picture yourself in 2004, 2005. And so there was no direct, de direct deposits. There was, a, you would actually have to go into the bank considerably more than you do mm -hmm. now. Might be hard for some people to remember, or, or maybe some people weren't even old enough um, that, that are listening today, but um, that was the reality. So there's huge teller lineups. There's all, all sorts of commotion, a lot of things happening. And so I was at the downtown Vancouver branch. There was a guy who used to come in with really, really big paychecks. I'm talking Thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar paychecks, maybe even up to a hundred thousand dollar paychecks. And as a 21, 22 year old kid, I'd never really seen anything like that. And so <laughs> he would come in with the paychecks. The reason he'd have to go to the teller line is because one, there's no direct deposit. Two, if he put the the, the check into the ATM machine, it would hold his funds for five days, which was you know unacceptable <laughs> for his financial situation or whatever he was doing. Got, I got to know him pretty well, and so it was him that actually kind of recognized my talent and he said, you know, kid, what are you, you know, what are you doing at the, at, at the bank here? And I said, right. well, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, writing my LSAT, which is the law school entry thing and, you know, kind of weighing my options. You know, I like this job. I get to wear a necktie. I'm downtown Vancouver. It's cool. You know, I'm just kind of trying to figure things out. And it was him that said, Hey, you know, I, I see how you interact with people. I see how sharp you are. The fact that you know what my transaction is and you, you wave me ahead just to, to get the line cleared and things like that. He's like, you've got good, street smarts and, and you've got charisma and you've got all these different things because you're wasting your time here at the at the bank and i, I kind of I, I chuckle now and I, I must have chuckled at the time but it was a little bit of a weird conversation in a very busy branch from the stranger that i didn't even really know who's you know i, I kind of i liked the guy what he was saying and so i said well tell me more like how do i make money like 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 you are like like tell me more on on on, on you know what you're doing and so he was an investment advisor at a, at a, at a local firm and so what he implored and he encouraged me to do is he said, do your securities courses, get your, you know, you've already done your education, but do your securities courses. And, um, you know, this industry will be a fantastic industry for you. So I was smart enough to listen to that. I did my schooling. Next time he came in, I talked to him. And as fate would have it, his last day was my first day at work because he was actually retiring. He was in his fifties. And so what he, what he told me was um, he told me that um, I, I can get you a job within the firm. I know you, you know, you don't have any family money you're, you don't have all sorts of connections, et cetera, but you have the tenacity of desire. You have the work ethic. You're probably going to have to support yourself for the first year or so, because you're probably going to make no money because it's a hundred percent commission based. But if you can do what I think you're going to do, you're going to do exceptionally well in this industry. And 
for me, that was actually still a difficult decision from going from, you know, my amazing salary of $40,000 a year, <laughs> whatever it was at, uh, <laughs> at uh, being a teller to, to zero, you know, that, that's a difficult decision. I've got bills and, you know, I'm a young guy and things, but I made that decision. And sometimes when you look back in life, there's opportunities that present themselves and you might, they might not be logical to you, but you feel them in your heart or your gut. And you really have to pounce on those opportunities when they present themselves. Cause sometimes they only present themselves once or twice in your lifetime and it changes the, sh the shape or trajectory of your life. Well, I mean, that was a, a real sliding door moment for you. I mean, yeah. just, just, and, and so that led you to join uh, the brokerage firm. Is that correct? That the yeah, it was a you know boutique brokerage firm, Global yeah. Securities. Uh, they've been acquired now since from a big you know um, to, <clears throat> to a, a different company. But so I started there. I got my you know feet wet there. Again, I you know I don't you know my, my, I don't come from money. My parents don't have money. My friends at that time didn't have money. They're all in college or screwing around. I guess in <laughs> the early twenties. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I learned from other people there. I figured it out. I, I started to really understand the investment business. I, I, I had to cold call people. I had to get outside my comfort zone. I had to do all sorts of things because again, if you're in a situation where, you know, they're not paying you for your time. So if I'm at work for 10 hours, I can make $0 because it's a hundred percent commission based business. So it really forces you to get outside your comfort zone and, and, and take chances and start to, you know, get rejection. Rejection is not an easy thing to deal with. People are very, very fearful of rejection. And so, you know, I, I started in that industry. I started in that business. I, I started to do exceptionally well within the first couple of years of that firm. And, um, and then that went in, in two, as you said, in 2008 or so, that's when Macquarie Investment Bank, uh, one of the largest investment banks in, in the world, really came into Canada and they were trying to recruit the best talent that they could get their hands on. And so they recruited myself and my, my partner to come over to uh, Macquarie Investment Bank. They paid us a ton of money and that was a you know really different experience because it was our first real experience in a real big kind of bureaucratic, you know, capital heavy, a lot of hierarchy type of organization. I, I learned a, a lot from, from, uh, from, from those folks and a lot of them are still my friends to this day. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was going from one extreme to the other in terms of the, 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 the small brokerage versus the large, you know, multinational, you know, corporation, right. With, with, you know, substantial resources. And I mean, that must've been, so, so, so certainly then at the, your brokerage expert ex experience that, that really um, helped you hone a little more of a resistance to rejection as it were and a tenacity that perhaps did you feel that those skills or those uh, qualities that you had to develop uh, served you well when you went across to Macquarie or I just wonder how you felt your development continued whilst uh, working for a large institutional organization? I think so. Like I, I, I generally think so. Um, you know what? What I can recall is, I was all like even at like at the first firm, I was the youngest guy at the firm, right? So there's a little bit of um, kind of uh, uneasiness, you know, because I, you know, do you fit in? All these people have more experience, they have more money, they've got you know all sorts of other things, and I was always kind of the young young guy. And then even when I moved to Macquarie in my twenties, my mid twenties. Uh, same thing, right? I, there was it was a lot of very very successful, sophisticated people. I you know sometimes felt like the odd man out in, in in a certain way where maybe I didn't fit because I was young. I was you know a little bit more inexperienced than the rest of the people. And and again for me, you know I I don't um, I, I like to win. I like to succeed, and I'll, I'll try and do anything I can to to really get to that point. And 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 for me, unlike you know, the, my, my earlier jobs at Wendy's and the grocery store and things like that were, you know, if you slack, they, they still pay you the $8 an hour, <laughs> you know, you might, you might not just be as productive, but <laughs> in, in these, you know, financial circles, if, yeah, I can put my feet up and I can go on Instagram and I can do all sorts of stuff, but I'm not really screwing the company. I'm, I'm kind of screwing myself because it, it is a commission-based business, right? And Macquarie, no different, 100% commission-based business uh, in, in the money management arena, which I was in. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I had some really, really unique 
opportunities and perspectives, you know, going from the structured to a commission to a really big uh, global investment bank. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, were, were there any... Were there any mentors at Macquarie? Anyone that that, that perhaps you, you're, I think you said earlier, you're still in touch with with former colleagues. Was there anyone there that that a little bit like the gentleman you spoke about earlier when you were in the bank, where they sort of they they saw something in you, they they maybe took you under their wing a little. Was it did 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 you have any one that that stood out, or or was it a little more just a little more? I mean- and again, maybe it's different in different cities, but I mean, my kind of experience or take of it is everyone, it's it's such a fast paced and fuel charged environment and everyone's really, and not everyone, but generally speaking, everyone's really concerned about themselves and their clients and what they're doing. Um, there wasn't necessarily a lot of time to be, you know, kumbayaing and holding hands and things like that. It was extremely, you know, I, I grew up on the West Coast of Canada where, uh, you know, the, the New York Stock Exchange opens at 6.30 in the morning. So for my whole adult life, I've been having to get up, get up at, at 5 a.m. Or, or before so I can shave, put a necktie in, come into work and things like that, right? So I'm used to getting up kind of in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, that's when your day starts. And even when the market closes in the afternoon, then you've got to go see clients, you've got to do research, you've got to do all sorts of stuff. So those are, you know, we were working really, really long, tireless, 12, 14-hour days for not for weeks, but for, for years on end, essentially. Oh. I, I don't think I actually went on a vacation for a number of years um, at that time. It's a, but, it's uh, a, but it was really good, though. Yeah. It's a young person's uh, pursuit, I think, isn't it? You've got to have the energy to to really endure that. And, uh, you know, yeah, 16, 18, 20-hour days, sleeping in the office. <laughs> I mean, we've all heard the stories <laughs> of... Uh, you know, just how intense uh, that is. And um, so I wonder then, what during your time at Macquarie, what, when was it that you felt like, you know what, I, I want to strike out on my own. I want to, I want to just, I want to do something for myself. And I, I, I wonder how you arrived at that decision. Yeah. So um, amazing time at Macquarie. We loved it. You know, had some really good business ventures, made some great friends, made a lot of you know friends around the world. I, I was, you know, U.S. licensed, uh, FINRA licensed. So a lot of my clientele were, were, were in New York. And so I was traveling lots. And so it really gave me an, a unique um, global perspective of the world. And I was so happy for that. Um, for me, back to what you were saying earlier, like I, I just I, I think I'm, I'm more entrepreneurial by nature. I, I don't love when people tell me what to do. I don't necessarily love or enjoy different levels of hierarchy and, and bureaucracy and, and things like that. And it's not to say that Macquarie did a, a bad job by any stretch. It's, it's quite the opposite. It's just in, in a big, big, you know, 20,000 or 40,000 you know, person firm, you know, if you're one person, you sometimes get lost in the shuffle. And so... Um, for me, what we actually did was we actually left Macquarie. We then um, moved on to a different firm, a smaller regional firm, um, back to kind of square one in a certain way. But this mm. time, instead of just being an employee, I was a partner of that firm. And so I actually had a little bit of or a little bit to a lot of say in, in, in some of the things. So that was a, a good kind of gamut from just being an employee in a, you know, you know, in a money management firm to a really big global investment firm back to now partner where, you know, you can kind of control your own destiny a little bit more. So we did that for a year and a half. We actually helped to grow that firm from like 20 people to 60. Uh, it was acquired that subsequent year. So it was really good call it timing. I learned a lot. And at that point in time, once we had sold that company, I said, okay, I, I you know, I, I don't, I love partners and things like this, but I'm just going to try and do this on my own. I've made a little bit of money, obviously not, not a trillion dollars, but I was enough, you know, comfortable <laughs> enough to, to kind of take that shot. And then the other thing is, is in life, you're, you know, people always wait for the perfect time, perfect time to get married, perfect. When's the perfect time to have kids? When's the perfect time to get a new job? There is no perfect time. There absolutely is no perfect time. You have to find the best indication of what you think that time is and really go for that time. And you have to have unwavering conviction of that. Because again, as we discussed earlier, there's only going to be a handful of opportunities in your life where you're going to see some of these things and you don't want to be that person, you know, sitting there in 40 years saying, Hey, I really wish I did this, but I just, I I didn't do it because I was too comfortable. Right. And so the the theme and a lot of this that we're talking about is, is that risk taking, risk taking 
desire and nature and being okay with failure and being okay with like nobody loves to fail but when you realize that the more you fail the quicker you get to where you want to be it changes your psychology and your mindset and it really changes your life for it for you yeah i i think that 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 willingness to to fail is is really important because we just you just don't learn by playing it safe and being too too risk averse you know uh, i think i think that's that's a key and you can apply it to any kind of aspect of life um you know i i i slightly tangentially i i learned to 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 snowboard at a very late stage in my life and i i spent the first few years really hurting myself and it was really hard and i thought why am i bothering to do this but you know what as you get better and better it you start to then understand why you're doing it and yeah then it becomes a real uh yeah like this and, is and exactly looking, why. And James, looking back, I'm sure you're so glad, you're so grateful that you went through, that you took a chance and you went through hell and you're probably on your rear end more than you're standing up for a while. Yes. But when you look back, you're like, I'm so glad I went through that experience. And, and, and that's the beauty of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And and it, it, it opens up, you know, you get to go to amazing places and, and you know, you're in amazing environments. And, you know, I... I that's not possible if you didn't decide one day, no, actually, you know, I have friends that have, they've been doing it for years. Why, why am I not taking that decision? No, let's just, just, let's get out there. The first day on the slope, it's terrifying. You know, there's a blizzard, it's freezing. And you're like, my gosh, I can't even see down the slope. What? And there's loads of people coming past me. <laughs> this is pretty terrifying, but, but you, you fall, you get up, you learn, you get a bit better. I, I mean, I know I'm kind of going on a little, but it, it, it's it's a formula that you can apply to 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 any aspect of your life, and and that that willingness to fail is, I think, it's just really important. Absolutely. Um. How so? In that respect to Fortuna, what what qualities did you look for, uh, Justice, when you're sort of looking at the team, building the team? Uh, are there any particular qualities that you look for? in people? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a handful that really stand out. So I, I think, you know, we are in, a, you know, I look, I, I do look for very intelligent people. I, I, I look for people that are kind of, you know, moderately to ultra intelligent, because a lot of the things that we're dealing with require us to be, you know, we're not reading the stuff in the newspaper, we're futurists, we're trying to predict trends, we're trying to predict things that are happening five, 10 years from now. And so you, you do need a requisite amount of intelligence to really start to look at the world differently and, and put some of these things together. So we look for very intelligent people, but even if you're intelligent, that doesn't do it on its own. You, you have to have, as we discussed a little bit earlier, for, for us at least, there is no substitute to hard work and putting those time, you know, time and hours in consistently over time, as we talked about on the compounding, where again, you might not be the smartest individual in the world, but if you can stick with it through ups, downs, and and, and time, you're going to come out way ahead than the more talented person. So I, I really, um, you know, pride and value hard work. Um, the trick on the hard work is you can't, you know, as they say, you can't take a horse to water and and, mm. and make them drink. So that the individual has, we have to be aligned why we're doing this. Like, like, why am I sacrificing my time away from my family and my kids and things like this? But like, I have to have a burning desire to really try and build some of these companies or help to change the world or, or, or help these entrepreneurs out. And so once your vision for myself and our employees are, are aligned, then the trade-off becomes a lot easier and, and the buy-in's a lot easier, right? So it, it's not for everyone. It's it, 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 it's a requisite of, of you know, having the right intelligence, having the hard work, and also seeing the grand vision and really working towards that. So the the marriage between those three, and and finally maybe loyalty as well. I, I really you know respect loyalty because you know we we're very generous. I give you know give the shirt off their, our backs to you know our colleagues and, and vice mm. versa. When I'm down, they lift me up. When they're down, I try and lift them up. So uh, again, I actually think it comes back down to maybe my early, early upbringing where that small sense of community where we try and really empower that. And, and again, if you're 
you're a firm of 30 or so people, that's a lot easier to do than if you're 20,000, right? Uh-huh. And so that it's been working exceptionally well for us and we're, we're very grateful for that. And as I said earlier, you've got offices now spanning uh, North America. Um, how have you, you know, how have how how have you found that when you're not, you know, you can't be in three offices at once? So I mean, when you're looking at how you're developing the the internal dynamics, the culture at Fortuna, I, I, are you delegating? to to your, well, the, your, yeah. your 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 colleagues the interesting thing is when it's one office and you're you're accustomed to going in there every day you see everybody you know with the one office it's it's easier in a certain way you have a routine you know you understand certain things so for me actually personally one of the hard things that i've had to do in the last couple of years is willing to kind of put our main office on the back burner and start to open these other offices, knowing that I won't be so accessible, I won't be so hands-on. I would love to be, but I've just I myself have to channel my energy to these new you know areas and really start to build those areas up and and, and really nurture not the office that's working, but the ones that are growing and expanding. And so, if you're a um, control freak, which I'm not, but um, <laughs> sometimes it's like your baby, right? You don't want to let your baby go, and so um, there's an element of of letting go and releasing and having faith and trusting in the process that these people are bright. They're, they're amazing. They, they, they can figure it out on their own. And if they, they need any help, I'm available pretty much 24 seven, but let them stand on their own and let's start to move into different areas and fields and collectively we'll be a lot better and stronger unit. So it's been a really interesting experience um, for me over the last couple of years, getting uh, this North American presence set up. And does that? I mean, I'm interested to understand how that then applies to the entrepreneurs, the the visionaries, the the the, the innovators that you're looking to invest with. And um, did you feel that um, how much how much emphasis do you place on 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 developing that chemistry with these these different management teams that you're looking to invest with long term? You know, I mean. Do, do you find that to be a a delicate dance because you know there's a lot of competition out there they don't have to take your investment i wonder mm-hmm. how you think about developing the relationship not just with your employees your colleagues but with the actual founders and entrepreneurs that you're... yeah and, and so just being a founder myself being a successful you know you know running a successful company having successful endeavors um you know i i, I can relate a lot you know, coming from nothing, you know, I, I, I can relate, I'm very relatable to the founders and vice versa, because we generally kind of think the same way. So I, I there's a lot of empathy there, um, you know, for their situations. What I will say is, you know, pre-COVID where, um, and again, Zoom is great. We're, we're using Zoom for this and there's a lot of amazing things, but pre-COVID there, there was a lot more, you know, let's spend time at, 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 so-and-so's office at Austin, Texas, let's spend a day or two, let's go through things because we didn't necessarily have the simplicity of, of just, let's just do a Zoom call. And again, there's nothing wrong with Zoom, but there's always a trade-off, right? And so sometimes the trade-off of the impersonality of the Zoom, you can't necessarily, you, you can't get what you'll get spending a couple days having dinner with the teams and going through things and, and developing that sense of like community and camaraderie. And so what I try and do is, it's, and it's not perfect, but I, I do really try and spend and schedule times with the teams. Like, you know, for example, I, I spend a lot of time in Miami. We have an office. I have a house there, um, you know, really close to the, the Space Coast, the John F. Kennedy Space Center and, and NASA. I'm at NASA every month now. We've got a, a world-class team, a great CEO called, called Rick, a uh, great guy, you know, developing a great business. And I try and get up there every month because I, I love what they're doing. He's a great guy. He's a great team. But having that, you know, in-person aspect of, of of the relationships, because again, it all comes down to the relationships. Maybe the endeavor works, maybe it doesn't, but you really want to, it's like a marriage. You want to keep that relationship intact no matter what happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'm going to come to the investment that you've made just this year in Starfighters in, in just a moment. Uh, but I, I just have just one quick question on 
sort of challenges, adversity, if I can say that, just because you mentioned COVID a moment ago, and I, I just wonder, you know, during that, that lockdown period, um, what, what did you find most challenging and, and what, what, what strategy or strategies do you feel that were successful for you personally when you were want, you know, looking to continue to motivate and inspire your team, even though you couldn't all be together? Well, the, the wild thing, well, I mean, there's several wild things that obviously happened during that period. But for us, the, the one wild thing that I didn't necessarily you know, anticipate was um, because everything was locked down or, you know, we weren't necessarily going for dinners or traveling all around the world and doing site visits and things like that. We actually had a lot of spare time in our hands in a certain way. And so what ended up happening was um, with because of the stimulus and a lot of money going into the financial systems, as you recall, James, the equity markets actually, they rocked. They absolutely boomed. Mm. And so you've got this robust market, us with a lot of spare time on our hands. And so we actually got to work. And it wasn't that we weren't working before, but we actually were working more in a certain way because we weren't spending time traveling, commuting, getting ready, doing all sorts of stuff. So we actually really leveraged that opportunity and that window to, to raise a lot of money, to invest um, you know, one of our portfolio companies was was sold for $460 million, a lithium company. So there it was, you know, um, there was a lot of really interesting things in the financial world on silver linings from that opportunity. Now, if, if I ran, ran a hotel or something, you know, tourism related, I wouldn't have maybe had those sort of benefits. But that comes back down to, um, you know, playing the card that's or, or playing the hand that's dealt to you. Yeah, and so you didn't find it too difficult making sure that everyone was remaining motivated and and and, and dialed in uh, within the team. It, that that I suppose in a way, then it was an opportunity to really deep dive into, you know, really kind of extending your your sort of uh, uh, investment focus. I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things. One, I, I think we really everybody on our team really loves what they do. And we kind of use that as an opportunity because, again, you can it's one of two doors. One door is you can sit there and say, hey, this really sucks. I can't believe I can't leave my house and I, I can only watch this show so many times. Or, <laughs> you know, you can get in this pity party of, of sorts, right? That's door number one. Door number two, it's like, hey, we really love what, our, what we're doing. Money's really flowing in our industries. Companies are really performing. There's some exciting deals and dealings happening. And I think the vast majority, if not everybody on our team, really channeled that energy and used it to kind of uplift themselves to really kind of work through, uh, you know, a, a once in a kind of lifetime uh, red herring type of uh, event. So I think that's what happened for us. And I think it was really possible, the fact that we are a small or smaller team of, you know, 20, 30 individuals. Yeah, it certainly was once in a, I mean, it was a, an, an incredible uh, period for us all to, to go through. And um, that, that... I, I'm mindful of your time, uh, Justice. So I, I really want to just um, start to conclude by let's uh, let's get to the. You've made a really exciting investment this year that coincided with opening the office down in Miami. Um, this is the investment you've made in Starfighters Space. Um, maybe I think Rick uh, Zvetkov is 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 running the company there. Could you talk a little bit about what? who they are, what they're doing, what's exciting about them. Absolutely. And and so I, I think it's a it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I, I I've loved the space industry since I was a little boy. Um obviously I didn't realize you know you could build and invest, you know, in companies, but I'm just saying just from a, a very simplistic form, I was, you know, very captivated by what's in outer space and planets and things like that. And so when the opportunity came to us, you know, being, you know, at the Space Coast down in Florida, you know, we, we came across this once in a lifetime opportunity that I would say, which, uh, you know, Rick's been, you know, Rick's had his company at NASA in between Jeff and Elon, uh, you know, for over 10 years since 2009. Hmm. So he's got great real estate. He's got great intelligence. He's got great people like Tim and all sorts of different individuals on his team that have been um, you know, running a really, really good business that's doing seven figures of revenue. Um, and he, he's weathered different cycles and storms. And he's really been able to, you know, 
build what I would say is on the verge of a, I think a world-class company. They've got, you know, Department of Defense contracts. And um, so what we've done is we've, we've given them a, a $50 million uh, investment commitment mm-hmm. to really put them on the grand stage, really fuel a lot of the stuff that they've been wanting to do because it's been self-funded to date, you know, God bless Rick. And so what we're doing is we're, we're, we're providing them more capital. And it's not just the capital. It is a lot of business expertise, a lot of business acumen, scaling, growing, a, you know, a company. Because, you know, a company from an earlier seed stage is a different company than some, somebody that's exe- exe- uh, aggressively growing. Mm. And so we're giving a lot of help and um, advice and, and, and work around not just the money, but helping how do we really make this into uh, a unicorn or a billion dollar company, which we've been a, a part of before a handful of times. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so what, what are they actually? So, so Starfighter's space, I I, I think I'm right in saying that, that, that they that there's a fleet of uh, of supersonic aircraft that they're they're, they're 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 using. But could you just expand on what it is they're actually doing? Sure, in, in simplistic terms. So Rick, over the you know, so Rick's uh, sorry, Starfire's Aerospace. They they own nine nine F one hundred four fighter jets, a hundred percent clear title. Um, so if you close your eyes and you think about uh, Tom Cruise or Top Gun. <laughs> Yeah. Those are F-15s, but not dissimilar to an F-104. So I'm talking real fighter jets. And so he, he, he's got uh, nine of them, seven of them are operational. And so what, we're, what they've been doing for the last couple of years is they've been working on R&D and developments. And so with our investment, they're going to be looking to launch satellites off the F-104s in the next eight to 12 months. Because there's two ways to launch, right? So one, you know, I'm sure you've seen the visuals of... Um, uh, Elon and, and, and SpaceX, which is a vertical launch or a traditional NASA launch would, would be that way. Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, they're also traditionally launching vertically. But if you look at Virgin um, and, and, and some of the other companies, they're actually l- launching um, off of airplanes. And so the fact that we actually have a fleet of airplanes, it's you know somewhat proven technology. It's just the funding that we need to get there to successfully try this. Now, in in the space game, a successful launch is is technically considered three or a commercial launch is three successful launches. So one could be a fluke, but you really need to you really need to be able to do it consistently. And so if you can do three uh, successful launches. That's really going to put this company on the main stage. And so we're really exciting for these game-changing, game-breaking opportunities like this. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's so exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, there's so much happening in space tech right now and uh, the, 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 the different types of uh, innovations that we're seeing and um, the whole satellite and, uh, yeah, payload kind of um uh opportunities now that are developing it's it feels mm-hmm. like so i think at the moment it's yeah it's around 200 billion but so you're you see this north of a, a trillion dollars what in the next yeah so, de- so it's, decade it, it, yeah right. so 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 uh, Amer- sorry in america it's about 250 billion dollars globally it's 560 so it's 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 already it's 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 well 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 on its way um we we do think it's going to a trillion dollars um, I personally think what Elon's and again, SpaceX is really leading the charge in the industry. They're they're one of the most valuable private companies in the world. Their last round was a hundred and fifty billion dollar valuation. I think Elon's going to take that company public in the next three to five years. I think it's going to be a more valuable company than Tesla. Even um, it's going to be a really really exciting time. And so what he's been able to do with what Elon's been able to do in SpaceX is kind of like um, it's equivalent to trying to use the internet before Google. Mm. Elon is the Google. And so it's just going to open up this entire beautiful industry that we're fortunate enough to be on the, the front lines of. And uh, when when we are about to do our first launch, James, we should fly you out. And uh, <laughs> after we get a successful launch under our belt, we'll, we'll drink some champagne <laughs> or, or some tea. Oh, that'll be... <laughs> yeah, I'll go with the champagne, I think. <laughs> okay. uh, that'll be fantastic. Um, last question. And it's been really fascinating talking to you. And thank you very much, Justice, for your time today. Just as a just as a last wrap up, you know, you, you, you call yourself a futurist. So I've got to ask, you know, we've been talking about leadership and, and just your your journey. This AI revolution that we're all living through right now, again, that's going exponentially. There's an arms race 
underway with with Microsoft and uh, you know with Google and Baidu. How do you think AI slash you know technology might in change the way that that, that uh, CIOs and founders actually operate going forward over the next few years do you, do you think it do you think AI will become a part of 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 how founders actually you know run their their firms and uh, think about their decision making Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, we're just at the very early beginning stages, obviously, of this AI revolution. You know, NVIDIA and a lot of these companies are getting a lot of, uh, you know, attention. But when you, in the grand scheme of things, we are still very early. Uh, you know, we're, we, for example, we're investors of, of OpenAI. We're small investors of that last round of financing. We like the team. We like the prospect. It's, it's one of the bigger companies. So we, we like that. But in terms of the relatability or the usability of, of, of some of the technologies, I think, you know, for us particularly, I, I think any jobs that, um, you know, like legal, for example, right? So legal, um, the lawyer will have to make the templates, they'll have to do all sorts of different things. But with the AI technology, it can really help to exacerbate. And, and, and it's almost like a research assistant, a virtual mm. research assistant that's mm. auto-programmed. And so you can apply that to so many different aspects of a startup or investment management. Um, a lot of investment management uh, folks, they're, they're in the data business. AI is going to be the best computing thing we've ever seen to, to deduce and succinct data and to intelligently see it. Um, on a personal level, I actually think that healthcare is going to be the biggest winner or, or one of the biggest winners. Um, I think the whole healthcare system is going to be absolutely disrupted over the next 10 years. I, I think, you know, I think right now it's doctor patient um, effectively. Mm. In the future, it's going to be doctor patient AI. Um, so my, my doctor's not going to have to rely on the education that he learned at the University of Michigan 20 years ago and different case studies. He can actually use this technology, which will not all, which will scrape the Internet and cases all around the world from New York City to London to Sri Lanka. And you've got this treasure trove of information for that doctor to make really, really intelligent decisions to then work with the patient on. Mm. And so when you really start to understand that, you know, the, the, the life expectancy is going to go way up. It's going to go through the roof. You know, we're, we're living to 80, 90 now. Maybe it goes to 130 or 150 mm. years old. I think it's, it's going to be very preventative. I think disease detection is going to be a, a significantly better because of AI technologies. I think drug development, drug development is going to be fan, better than we've ever seen. Right now, it takes 10 to 15 years. If, you, if you're lucky and all goes well to get a drug in the market, you know, having these AI technologies is really going to exacerbate all the different algorithms and, and the uh, functionality of drugs where, whereby you, you could probably get a very, very powerful, very well working drug that will save lives in the market within a couple of years and, and not 15. But and, yeah, and just as a last word, do, 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 in terms of like the research element, just bringing it back to, to, our, to, to our industry, you know, could AI really enhance the way that, that VC, P, even hedge fund managers are going to be approaching their research expertise, their insight generation, their idea generation? Their, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, could there even, you know, could we see AI as a co-CIO at some point? <laughs> uh uh, in, in my lifetime, absolutely. I'm 40 years old. In my lifetime, absolutely. I don't know if it's in the next five to 10 years, but it, it's certainly absolutely going to happen. It's, it's going to be uh, it's going to be disruptive. It's not something to be fearful of. You know, us as humans, we sometimes we get fearful of of, you know, computers taking over and things like that. That happens through every cycle and generation and any advent of a new technology, including the computers. Right. And so. I, what I do know is that I think, you know, human beings are extremely resilient. We're very intelligent. We're very uh, resourceful, we're very adaptive. And so as these mm -hmm. things start to become more and more prevalent, we shouldn't shy away from them. I mean, we shouldn't try and do unscrupulous things, but we shouldn't shy away from them. We should embrace those technologies and really try and cater those technologies to improve the quality of your and I life, James. Mm, yeah, no, very well said. It's fascinating. Just how do people find out about Fortuna Investments, uh, Justice? Where do they, any information you can share? 
Sure. Yeah. We, 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 you know, we're, we're online. I mean, we don't really do, you know, much marketing per se, but uh, you know, we're, we're a private investment firm. Um, you know, we're, we use our own capitals. So we're, we're not, you know, we're not fundraising or, or looking for money by any, you know, any stretch. Um, what we are looking for is we're looking for exciting opportunities, exciting deals, particularly in the battery technology industry, clean energy sector, uh, space, space tech, uh, you know, industries. We're really trying to find very, very exciting companies that we can, partner with and it's not just a check it's it's a you know really helping to grow and scale their business so we can continue to really disrupt and change elements of the earth which is what gets uh gets us up in the morning and so um, <laughs> yeah we have a website online you can google me okay um i i, I just joined twitter uh, oh, oh you're on followers you're, you're <laughs> I now, just joined, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're on x yeah. it's now x but by the way there, there you <laughs> go yeah <laughs> Uh, okay, so that people can find you on on X, yeah, uh, Instagram okay. and Twitter and LinkedIn and, and, okay. and all that sort of fun stuff. Yeah, and, and I really enjoyed which enjoyed the time, and I'm starting to do more uh, uh, external interviews like this, just to you know get the word out there, meeting some amazing folks. I was just at uh, um, uh, Space Florida. Uh, they had a uh, they had a uh, space day uh, last week, so I, I flew out to Fort Lauderdale and I was on a, uh, a speaking on a panel. So I'm you know getting out there, really really trying to embrace the ecosystem and find opportunities and, and really try and uh, build this uh, industry up that, that that that's starting to really take off. Yeah, well, no pun intended, and uh, that's a great. <laughs> yeah, that's been really fascinating speaking to you, Justice and. Uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of the year. Really exciting uh, investments that you've uh, clearly uh, identified with, uh, uh, as we've discussed with Starfight. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, yeah, just a huge opportunity. Um, I think Starfight is, is something to, to watch going forward. And um, yeah, wish you all the best for the rest of the year. And it's been a yeah, real pleasure having you on board. So thanks so much for today and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Likewise, the, the pleasure was mine. Thanks, James. Thank you.